You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spale. I'd also, I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters: Evan, Brandon, the Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin as well as our newest Commodores, and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Today, we're going to be returning to the War of the Spanish Succession. Over the next episode or two, we're going to be talking about a few major naval engagements, but I want to begin today with an introduction to one of our main characters. He's a little bit unique because... These major naval engagements are going to play a huge role in his life, but he's in no way actually associated with them. He wasn't in the Navy, he wasn't a soldier, and he wasn't going to become a pirate. But he is one of our main characters moving forward. And I tend to ask myself, you know, just what kind of character is he? My gut reaction is to label him a villain, but he's not. The villains are the murderous gangs of sea-roving thieves, right? Well, I mean, yeah, obviously. When your exceptional characters are the exception to the rule because they really didn't want to kill anyone, you know, they threatened to, did their best to make you think they would, and they were going to rob you anyway, but when that makes them the most pacifistic among your main characters, then those are probably the bad guys. Billy the Kid 
is always the bad guy. Jesse James is the bad guy. But those are the stories people tell because they're way more interesting. I mean, the good guys in those stories are the cops, sheriffs, and U.S. marshals who tried to take down the villain. So today, we're going to introduce the cop. We're going to introduce the good guy in our story. The man who's going to wind up fighting the forces of murderous disorder that are about to change the world. A man who, for a whole host of reasons, even if he's not actually the villain, will inhabit the role of the antagonist. This is episode 312. Ladies and gentlemen, Woods Rogers. If you don't know who Woods Rogers is, well, he's the guy who eventually is going to end the golden age of piracy, or very nearly, anyway. He's, at the very least, going to try really, really hard. In the story of the pirates at Nassau, Woods Rogers is a name that looms over everything. He's the boogeyman, you know, the big bad in that story. And that story is a good story, mainly because Woods Rogers chose to tell it. He would write a few books about his many adventures, books that made him famous and relatively wealthy. I don't doubt at, at all that there's a moment in Woods Rogers' life where he looked at William Dampier and said to himself, I could do that. His books were adventure stories. There's definitely a lot of embellishment in those pages. Moments that make Woods Rogers look particularly dashing and heroic. In Pirate Hunter of the Caribbean, The Adventurous Life of Captain Woods Rogers, David Cordingly writes, quote, In his journals and letters, Rogers comes across as a frank and forthright seafaring man who faced storms, mutinies, sea battles, and personal injuries with admirable fortitude and resolution. End quote. If the character of William Dampier was a bookish man always scribbling in his journal, Woods Rogers was swinging from ship to ship, sword in hand, cutting down the enemies of England. But we should remember that even if both of those characters are a bit of literary fabrication, they're still based in the reality of the person. Dampier was taking notes, and Woods Rogers was fighting the enemies of England. Unfortunately, though, the books that Woods Rogers wrote aren't biographies. There's not much in there about his early life. Still, though, we know a great deal more about his early life than we do about any of the pirates. His father was Woods Rogers Sr., Captain Woods Rogers Sr. I can't find his mother's name anywhere, which is a bit surprising. Captain Woods Rogers Sr. was not some invisible peasant. There should have been church records we could find, but apparently they've been lost. Captain Woods Rogers Sr., owned a substantial trading fleet. He made his first money in a voyage to Africa. There aren't a lot of details about that voyage, and we could pretend that he was buying ivory or something, but let's be real, he was buying human beings. 
that he was doing so illegally. Woods Rogers Sr. did not go through the proper Royal Africa Company channels. He was an interloper, just like Henry Every once was. And actually, that's not where the similarities between Woods Rogers Sr. and Henry Every end. That voyage to Africa took Woods Rogers Sr. to the east coast of Africa. And as we know from our time with Henry Every, Eastern Africa was not friendly to Europeans. The people of Mozambique, and especially the people of Ethiopia, were hostile to outsiders in general, excepting a few Muslim communities that were okay with Arab peoples. But likely as not, if you weren't from there, they'd just kill you as soon as you stepped off the boat. They'd learned their lessons in dealing with slave traders, colonizers, and missionaries. So it's much more likely that Woods Rogers Sr. landed at Madagascar and traded with the Malagasy there for his slaves. But here's the important bit. On that voyage, Captain Rogers made maps and sea charts of the whole region. But he didn't publish those maps and sea charts. He kept them at home, a private possession, and eventually he would pass them on to his son, who would make excellent use of those maps while hunting pirates. With his holds full of human cargo, Woods Rogers Sr. sailed back to his hometown of Poole. At the time, it was home to England's largest slave-trading marketplace, that's probably how he managed to afford a whole fleet of his own ships. He bought a few ships intended for the merchant trade. Mostly they'd be sailing to Spain or Italy to buy wine, which he would sell back in England. But he also bought uh, an entire fleet of fishing vessels. A fleet that would sail over to Newfoundland, stock up on every fish they could catch and bring it back to England. Woods Rogers Sr. was going to make a great deal of money in the fishing business. But I don't want you to picture, you know, a, a market stall somewhere where his fish wife sold his fish. No, this was big business. He was selling in bulk to the Royal Navy. He was one of a very few major contractors with which the Navy did business for their fish supplies. Woods Rogers Sr. made a lot of contacts in this business. For example, he was a personal friend of Admiral William Whetstone. You may remember Whetstone as the rear admiral that took command of the West Indies fleet after Vice Admiral John Benbow was wounded in battle. But we're not there yet. For now, his main job seems to have been accompanying those fishing fleets over to Newfoundland which shows us just what a big deal Woods Rogers' fleet really was. You know, losing these ships and all the fish they carried to the French would have been a major supply issue for the Navy. Eventually, Captain Whetstone's next-door neighbor moved out, and he invited Woods Rogers to purchase the property, which he did. The Rogers clan moved from Poole to a very, fine house in Bristol on the brand new, very fancy Queen Square. This was a very prominent show of his much improved social standing. The year was 1697, 
and Woods Rogers Jr., our Woods Rogers, was 18 years old. Back in Poole, Woods Rogers had apparently received a pretty excellent education and excelled at his studies. Given that his father had made a great deal of money and he had been such a promising student, Woods Rogers should have had a bright future ahead of him. But there was a problem. In England's fairly rigid political structure, Woods Rogers Jr. was not a member of the club. Despite his father's social and financial standing, Woods Rogers Jr. was, legally speaking, just a fisherman's son who had just moved to town. He was an unknown element. Now, his father was granted full rights, including voting rights, which was a big deal. And if he stayed in town long enough to have a grandson there, that grandson would automatically be granted full rights. That's the origin of the term being grandfathered in. But the son, Woods Rogers Jr., as an unknown element, was granted nothing. He would have to earn his voting rights. Luckily, though, Bristol had a simple four-year process to earn that honor. You had to apprentice for four years to a ship captain. That would earn you, legally speaking, what they called freedom of the city. It was a an acknowledgment that you were a freeman, a non-serf, a citizen subject of the king, and a respected member of the community in Bristol. This was common practice all over the European world. It dates back, in fact, to the ancient Roman Republic. Originally, freedom of the city was a right granted to triumphant generals who were granted freedom to have their troops enter the city you know, if they were to have a triumph or an ovation. Later on, the term came to be used for Roman slaves who had been freed and were therefore granted political rights, even if they weren't granted full citizenship. And we still see some remnants of this tradition today all over the world. If you are someone who's granted the key to the city, it's basically the same idea. Now, Woods Rogers was uncommonly old to be taken on as an apprentice. Normally, a boy would be taken on at about the age of 14, and he would be earning his full political rights when he turned 18, which is how old Woods Rogers was now. But, given his family's prominent social standing and his promising future, he was welcomed on board a local craft to apprentice under the captain. Before departing, though... Captain Whetstone agreed to a proposal of marriage between his daughter and Woods Rogers Jr. In 1697, Woods Rogers married Sarah Whetstone. Having been raised by a ship's captain in the Royal Navy, I don't imagine it was too distressing when her new husband left for his apprenticeship. She would have been used to that rhythm of life. You know, men from Bristol went out on the sea all the time. But it must have been a bit worrying when, while he was still on his apprenticeship, England declared war on France. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. 
Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And here we're going to shift gears. The naval battles over the next few months are going to change the trajectory of Woods Rogers' life. He's not going to sign up with the Navy. His family was way too rich for anything like that. He instead went to go work for his father, which is a boring story. But once these naval battles are done, everything is going to change. You will remember that the battle between John Benbow and Jean-Baptiste Ducasse in August 1702 led both France and England to conclude that fielding huge navies in the West Indies was way too expensive for the relatively meager results they saw. But they still had massive fleets in the home waters and the Mediterranean that were about to see some serious action. Our first fight takes us to 1701 and the outbreak of the war. King Pedro II of Portugal had long been an ally of England. It was his sister, Catherine of Braganza, who was married to King Charles II of England. King Pedro paid her dowry by giving England the city of Bombay. Since that time, the two kingdoms had been close trading partners and mostly on good terms. But England was getting a little bit pushy with their holdings in India. Now, King Pedro's first wife was a Duchess of Savoy, daughter of the Duke of Savoy. His second wife was a Habsburg, sister to the Empress and Leopold I's aunt. These were strong ties to the alliance, to the maritime powers of England and the Netherlands. Pedro was locked in until his wife died in 1699. The French delegation at his court jumped on the opportunity. 
They convinced the king of Portugal to abandon his alliance with the ever more overbearing English in favor of an alliance with France. It's important to remember that here in 1699, the king of Spain was Louis XIV's son. Portugal always had to keep an eye on what Spain was up to, and I'm sure that played a role in his decision to ally with France. But this was a disaster for the maritime powers. They really wanted King Pedro back on their side. And to that end, they sent Admiral George Rook to capture the Spanish port of Cadiz. Admiral Rook led a massive fleet of combined English and Dutch ships down the coast of the Iberian Peninsula, and it really was an amazing fleet. He had 25 ships of the line under his command. The Dutch vessels were the most impressive. They brought four second-rate ships to the fleet. They were seven provinces, Uni, Association, and Barfleur. All four of those ships carried more than 90 guns. They were gigantic floating fortresses. Beyond that, though, Admiral Rook had 21 third- and fourth-rate ships of the line, each of about 60 to 70 guns. That included Rook's flagship, the Somerset. Now, 25 ships of the line is nothing to scoff at, but every single one of them was accompanied by a frigate. That's an additional 25 nimble, well-armed vessels, and many of the ships of the line were accompanied by a fire ship as well. That brings us to a total of about 60 ships. And most of them, the ships of the line anyway, were less than five years old. They were in tip-top fighting shape. That fleet is nothing to scoff at, and Admiral Rook himself was a very impressive figure. He had a position of authority on the Admiralty Board, and he'd been at basically every battle of note in the Nine Years' War. Sending him out at the head of a fleet such as this was a symbol. But that's not all. Prince George of Denmark, you know, consort to Queen Anne of England, commanded his own ship in the fleet. This was all a very obvious show of force. You know, they call it showing the flag. It was a show that nobody could miss. A show of force that was meant for the eyes of King Pedro II of Portugal. They made no aggressive moves toward any Portuguese holdings or ships, but they were very obviously saying to him, Hey, look at this. Look what kind of force we can muster. We're going to be taking this fleet to Cadiz, but you might just want to rethink your Spanish alliance. The army of English diplomats currently working over King Pedro II pointed this out, saying that, you know, it's clear we're going to win the war. Look at what we can do. But there was an unspoken warning. Look at what we can do. Now, the port city of Cadiz lies about halfway between Seville and Gibraltar. Gibraltar being a fortress that guards the Strait of Gibraltar. That means that Cadiz is a really desirable piece of real estate. It serves as kind of an outlying bastion for the entrance to the Mediterranean. It's one of those locations that was fought over in every war between England and Spain. They'd been attempting to, and occasionally succeeding in taking it, all the way back to Sir Francis Drake. 
This Battle of Cadiz in August 1702 went about as perfectly as any Englishman could have possibly hoped. The Spanish had significant shore batteries and a cavalry detachment to guard the beach, but twenty-five landing craft, all of them filled with grenadiers, just wiped that cavalry detachment out. The big guns on all of those allied ships of the line took out the shore batteries just as quickly. In about an hour, the Allies controlled the beach and were beginning to take control of the port itself. By day's end, they would almost certainly have control of the entire city. But then, well, some of the officers had very super-secret orders they had been given. They were ordered to secure a few necessary warehouses there in Cadiz. They were warehouses filled with Spanish wine that belonged to Spanish merchants, but those Spanish merchants were just a front for English merchants and a few noblemen. These were men who had been doing business illegally with Spain, but now that the war was ramping up, it appeared that their stores of wine there in Cadiz were going to be kept by the Spanish authorities, so they'd given a few select officers orders to seize those warehouses full of wine. And they did so. The men captured them with ease, but when they broke down the doors and found warehouses full of wine that, officially, belonged to Spanish merchants, they started drinking. And, I mean, did you see how easy it was to take the port? Took us about an hour. It's time to celebrate, don't you think? And that's what they did. And that alone would have been bad enough. You know, you want your soldiers in fighting shape when you still have a city to capture. But that's not where it ended. All of these soldiers, with their bellies full of wine in a freshly captured city, did what soldiers with bellies full of wine do in freshly captured cities. I don't want to sound flippant about it, but the best phrase I can come up with is a carnival of rape and looting. The men were breaking into homes and taking whatever they wanted. Wives, daughters, valuables, meat, clothes, and always more wine. So then you've got this scene of English and Dutch soldiers in fine Spanish clothing, wandering around the streets, stumbling drunk, a bottle in one hand and a leg of lamb in the other, all of them searching for any woman or girl they could find. Now, the people of Cadiz certainly would have accepted that their city had been captured once it had been captured. As such an important piece of military real estate, this kind of thing happened basically every war, and at that point you learn how to deal with incoming forces. And bad things are going to happen when an enemy takes a city, but... This was another level. This wasn't a few isolated rapes and murders. This was a carnival of rape and looting. It was horrible. And by nightfall, the people of Cadiz were in a rage. You know, this was beyond the pale. So instead of submitting to their invaders, as they normally would have, they took to the streets. Soon, you find mobs of people roving the streets with guns and pitchforks and swords, any weapon they could find. They were looking for English and Dutch blood, which they found in torrents.
boats. The Allied Marines were all stumbling around in their drunken stupor, and the officers, to their credit, most of them, you know, a few joined in, but most of them were trying to rally the troops, but it was to no avail. So, little by little, these relatively small groups of soldiers were picked off by the locals. And it took a few hours to realize what was going on. The Allied grenadiers were mostly roving around in very small groups that could be taken out with relative ease. Their officers would have just assumed they were getting up to no good, when in fact many of them were dead. It wasn't until about midnight that they began to realize that their forces there in Cadiz had been cut virtually in half, and nobody was exactly sure what was happening to them. So the order went out to return to the docks and eventually to return to the ships. It took a while to get these orders to the roving bands, and many more men died while they were doing so, but eventually the last remnants of the invasion force fled. Now, had the English and Dutch managed to capture the city walls or capture the shore batteries, they might have held the city. You know, they had enough men to do so and certainly a fleet that would aid them. It's not impossible to imagine a situation where the Allies control Cadiz for the rest of the war, which quite likely would have been a bit shorter. But they didn't manage to capture the walls or the shore batteries. And when they fled the city, they left it open for the Spanish to reclaim it. And the Spanish did properly man the walls and the shore batteries, and denied the English fleet, impressive as it was, any opportunity at another approach. The maritime powers had certainly snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. It was a disaster. Next time, though, Admiral Rook is going to turn things around. Do you remember why John Benbow was sent to the West Indies? That's right, he was absolutely not sent there to search out the Spanish treasure fleet and secure it for the English. But after the war broke out, that became his main objective. However, he missed it. It left before he could capture it, or even attempt to do so. And at this very moment, the Armada de Barlavento was leading the Spanish treasure fleet across the Atlantic Ocean. And they were headed straight for Cadiz, where Admiral Rook was waiting for them. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Ben Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, well, unfortunately, the website that I've been telling you to visit for a few years now is no longer up. However, there are still plenty of good options to check out their music. YouTube, Bandcamp, Spotify, wherever fine songs are found. And I urge you to do so, because it's great stuff. Whenever you're done, you can go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
died Let him live on in legend tonight